0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series Season of the Spirit: Season of the Flesh. The world itself often seems to move at breakneck speed and the culture of outrage that walls us in on all sides is neither gentle nor kind. Learning to walk in the ways of patience and kindness is more difficult and more essential than ever. This is Katie just read, Galatians 5 tells us that one of the natural outworkings or the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of disciples of Jesus will be patience, meaning when one lives in accordance with the teachings of Jesus, keeps in step with the Spirit of God, one of the natural outworkings, outflow of that partnership and relationships will be that you will be patient. Patience isn't exactly one of the defining attributes of life in 2020, which is kind of funny given that we're being forced into circumstances that make our lack of control undeniable. Ordinarily, that's where patience comes in. But we're so unfamiliar with patience that we don't know how to deal with it when it's actually one of our last and only options. And our lack of patience has made us incapable, I think, of perseverance. Without perseverance, we can't participate in meaningful change in ourselves or in the world around us. And as I was writing this teaching, I thought about something comedian Ricky Gervais said. He said, and I quote, Now, in this post truth era, people don't care about the argument, they don't look at the argument. They say, Who's saying the argument? No, they're not on our side. It's ludicrous. Because we are impatient, we can't see the other side, we can't handle nuance, we can't deal with intellectual and emotional challenge or critical thinking and logic, let alone the spiritual undertaking of faithfulness and conviction and accountability. The patience we do have is often contingent on circumstances because it's buoyed by mood and disposition. If we're feeling great and things are going our way, then we can deal with an annoying thing or two. If not, then we can't. So it's obvious, it goes without saying, that human beings are broken. The world is broken. It makes perfect sense that in the Bible's paradigm, forbearance, a word that describes patient self-control and restraint and endurance, forbearance does not come naturally to us. It comes even less naturally in times like these. But the generosity of God is that he is willing to give us that which we cannot muster by sheer power of will. That's what we've been talking about these last few weeks, the fruits of the Spirit. Now, often Christians read that list that Katie just read in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. And we think, geez, okay, wow, I've got to get out there and be loving and be joyful and be peaceful as if that is the command in the text. But the command is actually at the end of the list. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, which means organize your life around patterns and habits and rhythms and routines that regularly draw near to God and thereby access the resources of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of which, the natural outworking of which will inevitably be love and joy and peace and on down the list. And when it comes to patience, it's not exactly difficult to recognize the appeal of patience at any given season of life. But when our world feels like a pressure cooker with pandemic and closures and lockdowns and layoffs and injustice, police brutality, riots, counter-protesters killing protesters, protesters killing counter-protesters, election season political infighting, we realize we need resilient patience just to live to survive in the world, let alone to experience freedom and peace. There's actually three Greek words that describe patience in the Bible. There's makrothumia, which is here in Galatians. It means long-suffering, maybe you've heard it put that way before, or more literally long to anger, as in it takes a long time to make someone angry. It means to delay anger, and it's often used to describe patience between people one person being patient with another person. There's hapuname, which describes perseverance in the midst of suffering or patience with circumstances. So the first rejects cowardice and despair. It, it, it enables patience toward other people. And the other is rejecting wrath and revenge and refusing to indulge those tendencies. There's proskaterio, which means sustained attention towards something, or more literally, persistence, as in uh, Jesus' parable of the persistent widow, if you remember that story. Now, together, that trio of Greek words reflects patience with others, patience with circumstances, and then persistence with God. So start at the top. Why be patient with other people? Well, the easy answer is because God is patient with us. Karl Barth wrote that the patience of God... Is a purposeful concession of space and time. Which sounds like a a weird cosmic way of putting it, but it's actually pretty beautiful. When constantly confronting a world set against him, God intentionally creates space and time to allow for and welcome repentance. God creates time and space between sin and the inevitability of sin's ultimate consequences, thus creating the possibility for redemption when there was no possibility before. And it's not just a salvation story as we typically think of it. There's lots of little instances throughout the scriptures as well. Think of, if you know the story, God's mark of protection on Cain or God's preservation of Noah's family and the animal kingdom, or God's many, many, many concessions for unrepentant Israel, or God's sparing of Nineveh, and specifically the animals there he mentions, or God's ongoing pleas to Jerusalem. And today, think of God's deferment of final judgment in order that more people could come to faith and be saved. It's actually put plainly in Second Peter when we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why God defers judgment. So all of us benefit from God's patience. The patience of God is, for many of us, though, kind of sight unseen. Think of your own life. My guess is that every one of us are aware of ways of thinking and living that at some point in our story became habitual. But eventually we came to understand that these things are contrary to the teachings of Jesus. Maybe it happened really fast after you came to faith. Maybe it took years after you started following Jesus. It could be something like you were unwilling to forgive someone or Maybe we were prideful or cynical or lustful or selfish or idolatrous. And despite the fact that the scriptures condemn all these things, God did not destroy us, nor condemn us, nor write us off, nor abandon us, nor overlook us. Instead, God made room when we were undeserving and oblivious. Even now, we have blind spots in our discipleship and God does not discard us. He's patient with us. He creates time and space for repentance. And the promise of coming judgment in the future not only creates a gracious window for redemption, it simultaneously frees us from the felt need to do the judging ourselves. God gives us time so that we can trust that He is giving other people time and that He will be the one to judge rightly. So here's an example from domestic life. My kids... Our best friends, they play together for hours at a time almost every single day. It's a beautiful thing most of the time. But eventually, inevitably, someone gets upset and a skirmish breaks out between the two of them. So I'm always telling my son, because he's the older one, that if his little sister really bothers him, before you take matters into your own hands, before you hit her or scream in her face or snatch a toy away, come tell me. Because you can trust me to judge fairly and to care and to listen, and I will exact justice in the best interest of both of you. It's not just so you don't get in trouble, it's because it's better for everyone. You don't have to be the one who solves the problem. Now, other people and our propensity to sin put our ability to demonstrate patience to the test, whether we're six years old or much older. But there's more to it than that. Suffering can test our threshold of perseverance like few things can. And ironically, suffering, as most of us know all too well, can estrange us from God. And I say that that's ironic because we have solidarity with God when we suffer. In the person of Jesus, God's ability to weather suffering is on groundbreaking, breathtaking display. Jesus was treated unfairly, and though he was beaten and abused, tortured, and executed, he did not lash out against his attackers and enemies. He did not resort to violence. Rather than speak hatred and condemnation, Jesus, in the midst of his suffering and execution, spoke loving forgiveness, perhaps the greatest demonstration of patience the world has ever known. And we think, oh, well, sure, he was Jesus. But we also believe that Jesus was a human. He was a man. He was a man who lived a fully spirit-empowered life, that the Spirit of God alive in Jesus that empowered him to accomplish the things of God is also alive in his followers today. At least we say we believe that. I often wonder if I really do. So it comes down to this. Willpower alone is not a sustainable resource for patient resolve. My therapist likes to say, willpower is great until it isn't. And rather than be crippled by our inherent limitations, this becomes good news for the disciple of Jesus, liberating news, actually. Because when we relinquish the delusion of sheer willpower, and we acknowledge that despite our inherent limitations, we have been given immediate access to the incredible power of God's Spirit, we can learn to nurture the immediacy and persistence with which we pray. Now, I realize that was a mouthful, so here's another domestic analogy for you. Getting lamer every Sunday, apparently. I, I have a little house nearby where I live with my family, and I've embarked on a few house projects from time to time. Abby and I both had fathers who were extremely capable with handiwork and carpentry, all manner of DIY home stuff. You'd think we'd have inherited all that, but mostly we rely on YouTube tutorials, and she's way better at all of it than I am. Anyway, we have a, a humble selection of tools at our disposable, but just moments away down the street is the Barguerra household, which I call Barguerra Depot. Scott and Kristen have a garage full, maybe I shouldn't be telling everyone this, they have a garage full of organized labeled trinkets and power tools ranging from the staples to the obscure stuff. Sometimes I just test him and say, do you have this thing I just saw on the internet? And he'll be, yeah, I got one of those. Now, I've borrowed so many tools from Scott that he eventually just gave me his garage code and said, look, just take what you need and put it back when you're done. Now, because I can't help but be aware of my own lack of tools, the tools that I need, and because Scott has demonstrated his unconditional generosity again and again, I don't hesitate to ask him for tools. I've been emboldened by my own limitations and by his generosity and his resourcefulness. In fact, I began to think of it less like a limitation and more like, hey, I've got every tool that I could possibly need. They're just down the road in someone else's garage. You can see where I'm going with this, I'm sure, that we can't overcome our own brokenness and unhealthy thought patterns and habits can become a helpful compass that redirects us to the resources of God's Spirit again and again and again. It's not that we don't have what we need. We have it. We just have it through the Spirit of God. We know that it's not in us, in and of ourselves alone. So we have to access something beyond ourselves. And that can make us persistent in the way that we pray. Think of the parable in Luke's biography of Jesus, what we often call the persistent widow I mentioned earlier. The picture that Jesus paints It's not arbitrary, it's of a widow, someone who has suffered greatly and who would have been ostracized from society. So Jesus, the artist, deliberately cast his short work of meaningful fiction with a protagonist who would would have every reason to feel beaten down by the arbitrary cruelty of an indifferent world. And she knows that she has to look elsewhere for justice and she is persistent and faithful and keeps asking. And Jesus tells them that the whole point of this little story is to teach them to always pray and never give up. When we embrace spirit-led patience in times when the world seems poised to energize our flesh, the broken parts of us that are bent away from God to make us angry or hateful or to make us hopeless and despairing, to make us lethargic and apathetic, When we sit in the tension of a world gone mad, patiently persisting in prayer, we, like God, create space. The patience of God creates a new window for healing and restoration and repentance where there was no window before. And we can be like Him in this way. Think about it like this. Ordinarily, The inevitable consequences of sin, according to the scriptures, is death or the wages of sin is death and separation from God. But God, as a generous concession, has created something called redemptive time, when rather than reaping the immediate consequences, inevitable and ultimate consequences of sin, we now have time and space and God's patience to allow for restoration and life to the fullest. When we embrace spirit-led patience and persistent prayer, we train ourselves to wait for things to change, to wait for someone who hurt us to repent, and we create space in which we can cool down or allow God's spirit to tell us what we need to hear, or to convict us or to direct us and to lead us into repentance and healing. This is why so much of Jesus' teaching is about the long road. In a world erupting at the seams with hysteria and news media madness about sickness and death and lockdown, our master and teacher reminds us the world is like this. You remain faithful, you follow me. As the world is scrambling and clawing at one another in a desperate bid for political power, as the crucial remedy to injustice and inequality, Jesus reminds his followers of the kingdom, the mustard seed that becomes a great tree, but slowly and over time. So, the spiritual disciplines, something that we talk about all the time at Van City, they are slow down practices. Think about it prayer, fasting, silence and solitude. All take place out of the frenetic traffic of life. Every nonviolent movement in history has been carried out with the faith in the slow road rather than the quick fix of weapons and hate. Patience makes us gentle. The long road, the slow way, softens our hardened hearts. I'm sure everyone knows or has known a person or people to whom or for whom everyone apologizes before you even meet them. You know, that kind of, It's like, oh, hey, you're about to meet so-and-so. They have a strong personality or, or they come off as really rude and really unkind, but that's just their personality. You know, these introductions you get before you meet the person. In other words, Everyone in this person's life has silently conceded to let this person just be rude. Everyone thinks they're a jerk, but no one cares enough to deal with it. That person is harsh. And the Bible has a word for harsh that means to make bitter or to make sour. The dictionary defines harshness as unpleasantly rough or jarring to the senses, cruel or severe. The whole world feels harsh right now. The news is harsh. Political rhetoric is certainly harsh, social media is harsh, Christians often seem very harsh. And that person who takes great pride in their harshness, the kind of people who think it's awesome to be unfiltered, say what you mean, brutally honest as they often call it, all of their friends think they're difficult or unkind or just a jerk. And I say this from experience because years ago I had a friend good enough to say those things to me and hold me accountable. And I've worked really hard for years to try and embrace quiet and calm and learn to be slower to speak and learn to be gentle. I certainly don't do it perfectly as anyone who knows me can attest, but I'm aware of it. And on my best day, I'm trying really hard to be someone else because I believe personally that there are certain personality attributes that if we follow Jesus, even though they come naturally to us, He will ask us to change them. So for those of us who can be you know, intense personalities are loud or brash. If we are to learn to, in the language of the New Testament, let our gentleness be evident to all, then we will have to go against what feels naturally to us, what feels natural to us. Or on the other side of the spectrum, for those of us who are naturally very quiet or very passive, if we follow Jesus, we will have to find our voice and mature and speak up, though it feels contrary to our innate disposition. But the harshness of many Christians is deeply problematic because it creates and maintains an idea of God as himself very harsh. And that's just not true. It's a very popular misrepresentation of God and it prevails in the dominant culture. When those who claim to be God's people are harsh, they reinforce the myth of a harsh God. John Tyson argues some of the roots of our harshness are first competition, The desire to get ahead, to advance your career, to make more, to be more, to see more. Social media is, of course, the drug dealer of competition, transforming everything from meals to parenting to homes to travel to fashion into a desperate, clamoring scramble to posture and showcase and compete, mangling and deforming even the beautiful things of life into perverted gestures of narcissism. There's also the violent speed of life. We're so used to going so fast to instant gratification that our expectations have shifted and we don't know how to allow for patience and gentleness and the small things of life. There's also numbness. Often our harshness isn't rude talk or an abrasive demeanor, but it's in the things that we do, the gestures. The way people flake out on commitments or bail out on communities, thinking only of themselves and what they want and not how it affects other people. A bold selfishness indicative of a basic, unfeeling attitude, a numbness toward other people. There's also misplaced identity and loyalty. Or maybe it's in the way we curate our attitudes and personalities and priorities in such a way that we forget that all people are created in God's image, and that as disciples of Jesus, we owe other people dignity, kindness, and self-sacrificial love. Think about the way political idolatry has absolutely dominated the social landscape of 2020. As Mr. Gervais put so well a bit earlier, alleged disciples of Jesus have divided the, divided the world into us And them, based on right and left, and everything from voting to quarantine procedures to hashtags, is an opportunity to see who is who to reinforce our misplaced identities and loyalties. And Jesus' command to love enemies, to serve one another with self-sacrificial gentleness and kindness, has absolutely been trampled in the process. The rabid, black-and-white, moral, political absolutism of my parents' generation— identical in nearly every way, has simply shifted from the right to the left and was inherited by the younger generation. A whole new crop of unthinking, closed-minded political fundamentalism just on the other side of the aisle. And it's a lifestyle of harshness creating a new reputation deficit a new generation of Christianity, because you and I have to understand that no matter how righteous we believe our indignation, our disdain for what we think is evil, is never a permission slip to abandon kindness, to neglect enemy love, to practice nonviolent peacemaking in the way we talk and behave and post online. Otherwise, we defy Jesus. The kindness of the Spirit does not mean that we're never allowed to be outraged or upset or to lament or to speak up against evil. Of course, we're allowed and encouraged and even commanded to do those things. But the challenge facing disciples of Jesus is to train in the ways of kindness by the resources of God's Spirit so that even holy indignation flows from the gentle humility of love. Now, Anyone who knows me even moderately knows I'm speaking from personal conviction. I have failed at this. I'm prone to sarcasm, extreme ideas, strong words. And I believe there can be a place for those things, thank God. But I want them to flow from and through the wellspring and filters of the Spirit of God in me. This means that the kindness of God will be produced in me by the Spirit, and then flow out from my unique personality and into the unique seasons and exchanges of my life. We're not to be an assembly line of identically polite drones, but each of us working to exercise the disciplines of kindness in unique ways through our unique personalities and outlets. In the scriptures, the kindness of God and the goodness of God are so essential to his character that they become interchangeable synonyms. In Exodus 34, God's First explicit self disclosure statement to Moses. He says of himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is what God wants to be known of his identity first and foremost. And this paradigm forms the biblical author's understanding of God from this point to Revelation, the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Now, of course, we realize that there are scenes throughout the Scriptures in which our very personal relational God becomes angry against evil and injustice and in which there are consequences for those things. But the two things to remember about those passages where God seems Uh, pretty intense, to say the least, is that one, even God's righteous fury against the exploitation of people in creation is a painful demonstration of His loving goodness. God hates evil because it wrecks things and it hurts people. And two, God deals with evil in strong, direct ways, and will do so in a great ultimate sense, at judgment, so that we don't have to. But God's Default, baseline, constant state of being is kindness, graciousness, compassion, and loving faithfulness. In fact, even in the scriptures, we see God's anger and his kindness coexist in painful lament. In Jeremiah 31, for example, at this point in the story, we've spent the first 30 chapters of the book reading really heavy stuff about God's people being forced into exile. It's not a light read. And as God speaks out against the evil and idolatry of Israel, he also says this Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Far from cruel and vindictive, God's heart breaks in discipline. Look at this from Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Why is God, even in his anger and even in his justice, depicted not as harsh and vengeful, but as a wounded lover or as a brokenhearted father? Because crucial to his identity and being, God is not harsh, God is kind. Later in the New Testament, Paul will summarize the motivation of the entire gospel story with kindness. Look at this from Titus. At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Or look at this in Ephesians. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Messiah Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in King Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When we were deserving of punishment, before we did anything at all, God was kind to us. God's kindness is not reserved for those who are first kind to God, which is why Jesus teaches his disciples to be like God in our willingness to demonstrate kindness to our enemies, saying that God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And Jesus demonstrated bold, outgoing, active kindness in His healing of lepers or His fraternizing with hookers and crooks, His compassion for broken, screwed up people, His forgiveness of traitorous friends. Jesus is kindness embodied. And the Spirit of God that enabled and empowered Jesus, who was human like you and me, to embody the kindness of God, that Spirit is in those of us who follow Jesus. Biblical kindness refuses to demonize other people and instead humanizes its worst enemies as made in God's image. Biblical kindness recognizes people as more than sides or issues. Biblical kindness seeks to listen and understand rather than to overpower with words or with rightness or with condemnation. Biblical kindness is not surface, not superficial politeness or pleasantries, but an active concern for the tangible needs of other people, friend or enemy. So when we are patient, we create space for redemption, but redemption will not necessarily transpire in that created window unless it is also populated with the loving power of kindness." It's not enough to just make room. God also populates that redemptive time with kindness. As it is written in Romans 2, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Without kindness in that window of patience, we're left with harsh religious obligation or empty guilt and paltry willpower. But kindness is willing to lift us up and carry us And empower us. Kindness is patient with us. Kindness leads us to repentance. So I think a question worth asking, a question that I've been asking myself all week, is how kind are you? How kind are you by default? Have you ever done an audit of your tone? It's not always a fun thing to do, believe me. How would you describe your tone? Is the way that you talk Is the way that you talk online consistent with the way that you talk in person? Are both voices gentle and kind? Is the way that you talk about other people when they're not around consistent with the way that you talk to them in person? Are both voices gentle? And then after you ask those questions, ask yourself, do you need to do some repenting this week? Here's another one. Do you demonstrate kindness in parenting? I realize not all of us are parents, so hang tight if this isn't for you, but we've got a lot of parents in our church. I realize that parents have a way of commiserating over the hardships of raising children. That's not all bad. Uh, I participate in it all the time. But man, sometimes I see the way that parents make jokes of their kids online especially, or they constantly quip things like, get me out of here, or they talk about the legitimate struggles of parenting or homeschooling and quarantine or whatever it might be as if they can't stand their own family and i think to myself man there are parents who have lost their children there are, are would-be parents who can't have kids at all and we as parents one day will likely weep over the passing of time that moves our children from needy and small to independent and grown so we should learn to draw on a mature understanding of those things and of ourselves as god's children In order to demonstrate patient kindness to our kids every day. The same is true of kindness in our marriages. Again, I realize not applicable for all of us, but for a lot of us. And I've known married, married couples who, under the guise of, you know, honesty or authenticity, will verbally demolish their spouses. Or they'll say, man, they're just so bad at this. Ha ha ha. Make a joke out of them. They drive me crazy every day. I need time away from them. Get them out of here. Their interests are so annoying or whatever it might be. And the same is true of close friends, the way that we gossip and slander one another under the guise of venting or honest talk or commiserating. And if you're not sure which is which, which is, you know, honest talk and which is gossip, ask yourself if what you say honors the person it, is, it addresses as made in God's image and worthy of dignity. Ask yourself if it's genuinely intended to do good. And I'm not at all saying that we never drive each other crazy or that we never need time alone. We do, but is it kind to talk about your husband or your wife or your kids or your friends that way? That harshness has lasting and detrimental long-term effects. Creating a culture of kindness in your home and in your relationships amidst a world and a season and a culture in which kindness is in short supply will shape the future of your family and your community, your relationships and the people in them. We are to also demonstrate kindness based on those same ideas of resilient patience and considerate compassion for the church in the way that we speak and interact with and deal with our community as a whole. And then offer that kindness to the world around us. Man, I have been, just to be uh, honest and vulnerable with you guys, for I've been so discouraged as of late by... Alleged disciples of Jesus being duped by the socio-political outrage machine and buying into this satanic impulse to be harsh and unkind and unloving, to demonize and ostracize other to others, to willfully neglect the clear teaching of Jesus and to instead play by the petty rules of a broken world, so that when a teenage... Blue Lives Matter activist guns down and murders people in Kenosha. The right says, well, they got what they deserved." And then a Black Lives Matter activist guns down and murders counter-protesters in Portland. And the left says, well, they got what they deserve. Does this demonstrate the scandalous kindness of God? Absolutely not. Thinking of this kind is an affront to the God of kindness. It is a declaration of allegiance to the evil one. Kindness is controversial. Kindness is subversive. Kindness is an affront to the status quo. And we are commanded by our master to live and walk in the ways of kindness. I thought of a few people this week who have stories that reflect kindness and the power The subversive power of kindness. Rosaria Butterfield was a a lesbian, tenured professor of women's studies who published a takedown piece on a Christian men's group called The Promise Keepers. And out of that published piece, one of the men she critiqued reached out to her, invited her into his home, not to argue or defend himself, but just to show hospitality, and they became friends. Dr. Butterfield came to faith in Jesus. She married a man named Pastor Kent Butterfield, and she writes about the power of kindness and hospitality to change lives. Or I thought of Daryl Davis, who's a black man infamous and controversial for his willingness to befriend members of the Ku Klux Klan, to have dinner with them, and to slowly, over time, make them his friends. Daryl has led dozens of Klan members to leave the hate group this way. Not just niceties, but subversive, obstinate kindness that changes the world around you. Dane Ortland wrote this, "'Only as we walk ever deeper into this tender kindness "'can we live the Christian life "'as the New Testament calls us to. "'Only as we drink down the kindness "'of the heart of Christ "'will we leave in our wake everywhere we go "'the aroma of heaven "'and die one day having startled the world "'with glimpses of a divine kindness "'too great to be boxed in by what we deserve.'" I love that wording, a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.